What is up, folks? Big ups to the tens of ones listening out there. It's me. It's me. It is Mr. Sensational Gino V presenting you with episode 41 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. If you're just joining us for the first time, this is a show where we sensationalize the everyday where just about once a week, I come to you with 30 to 40 minutes of takes you didn't want, thoughts you didn't need, and all the content you never asked for. So without any further ado, let's strap in for the 41st iteration of our time together. And to start things off, uh, let me just put it out there that uh, today's episode, episode 41, almost didn't happen. Nearly didn't happen. I mean, it would have happened eventually, but it almost didn't happen today that I'm recording it. It almost didn't happen this week that it came out, if you're listening to it, when it was first released. Uh, Just due to continued hectic times over here in the Vegaverse. And I was feeling an extreme pull towards um, what I see robots, the boss here at the network, refers to as the need to wander the earth. I was feeling the need to to get away from the microphone and clear my head for a week. Um, as those of you who listen to the show may know, may remember, the Sensational family is currently in the process of attempting to sell uh, the previous version of Sensational Manor, the home that we lived in in Santa Rosa, California, before moving to our current city of residence, Napa, California, um, attempting to sell that house in Santa Rosa, and folks, we are now on our fourth, fourth prospective buyer. Buyer number one. I don't think they were ever really serious. The offer was too good to be true, and they bailed out 10 days into the escrow process. I, I have a feeling these were people with very solid uh, loan backing and a very big deposit. I have a feeling, a feeling, an inkling that they were making multiple offers on multiple houses and chose one besides ours. Prospective buyers number two. We made it through the 10-day inspection period of uh, the 30-day escrow period, much like buyers number one. And at the 11th hour on the 10th day before removing the inspection contingency, which is what you have to do to move on with the, the sales process to get to the end, where the other party finally owns your home and you can walk away from the home that you no longer want to own. Um, at the 11th hour on day 10, these people started asking for um, all kinds of excessive credits back off of their uh, offer price um, for various repairs and such around the manor. Um Things were uh, willing to entertain to a certain level, but it was just starting to get weird, and then they were getting unresponsive, and then they basically uh, admitted to the fact that they had discovered that they could not actually afford to take on the mortgage. So they left the sale. Prospective buyer number three. Prospective buyer number three, we made it through that inspection period. And he started to get a little bit crazy about wanting money back. He had been upfront about how much he wanted back for repairs, and we were fine with it. Then he asked for for even more 
than that. I, he was asking for $5,000 credit back, and then he wanted an additional 7500 credit back. But he wanted, he wanted it for all kinds of zany things that were not really realistic. We just put in brand new uh, heating and air conditioning in the house, and he wanted part of that 7500 for prospective future furnace repairs. And it's like, bro, it's brand new. This isn't happening. There's something else weird that he was bugging out about at the 11th hour on day 10. Um, but I can't even remember what it was. But we're like, no, dude, the, the, the 5000 you asked for, that's fair. But we're not really going to go further than that. And he acquiesced. And time marched on. We got to day 27. Day 27 of the 30-day uh, escrow period where the final contingency needed to be removed, the loan contingency. And then after that, it was just a couple days to finalize things that should have been done. We we're going to be walking away, no longer burdened with this home that we don't live in, that we no longer want. Um, day 27, we were informed that uh, this fellow was uh, just, had, just had to get one last piece of paperwork, and they're going to hope to be done by day's end. We didn't hear anything. And day 28 was a Saturday, and our realtor told us that she had reached out to his realtor and had not yet heard anything. And that is always a bad sign, because once you start getting ghosted, uh, things are usually going south in these real estate deals, it seems. And later that night, this last Saturday night, uh, come to find out, this fellow is buying the house just in his name, but this fellow is married. And uh, California, it's like a no-fault divorce state. Um, you know, if a, part, if, if a couple divorces, it doesn't matter who caused the divorce. They kind of split everything evenly. Um, so if you're a married individual in California, you can't really just buy a property just in your name and not have the spouse be somewhat involved in the co-signing. I'm probably explaining this wrong. Or a, a realtor could uh, burst through the wall and... Uh, fact check all this, but that's basically the gist of it is this individual needed, um, some documents signed, notarized, um, by his wife. Small problem. Said individual's wife is currently in the Philippines. So in order for this individual's lender to give him the loan he wanted to buy our house, he needed a signature from this wife, but he, the lender would only accept a signature notarized by the U.S. Embassy in the Philippines. And as it turns out, the U.S. Embassy in the Philippines has suspended notary services due to COVID-19. So this prospective buyer asked if he could push out his sale date another month, but even then it wasn't sure, it wasn't clear what would be going on, and we had to be like, uh, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. But, but, we had a backup offer on the table that I assumed would be completely uninterested by this point. But it turns out that this backup uh, potential buyer had been calling our agent every Monday, or their agent had been calling our agent every Monday, to see what the status of the house was, and they were still keenly interested. And so we immediately went into yet another 30-day escrow period. So we get to wait another 30 days, at any point during which this could fall apart, we're going to have to go through this whole freaking horrendous dance again. But hey, maybe in 30 days it's over. In a weird twist, I actually know the individual who's this individual number four who's attempting to buy a house. At least the it's a couple and one half of the, of the couple I know. The individual, I attended a comic book convention with him. Comic book convention known as WonderCon. It used to take place in Oakland, California. I think it's moved to San Francisco, California. But when I went, uh, I was probably like 14. And he was a bit younger. Maybe he was like 10. But... Uh, 
a guy that we knew, an adult that ran a bulletin board system in the 707 area code. We've talked about bulletin board systems on the show before. It was pre-internet. You know, someone would set up a, a home computer attached to a phone line. You could call in. There were message boards. And then there was a whole vibrant local scene around the people that digitally inhabited these boards. Anyway, this this guy that we were friends with uh, took us to a comic book convention, and we had a grand old time. And um, this younger than me boy's mother was also up in the the modeming scene. She was an adult at the time. Uh, but anyway, the, the the boy that was maybe like 10 or something that was younger than me that attended this comic book convention with me is now an adult attempting to buy my house in San Francisco. I, ha- I have a feeling he would have no recollection of this and not have any idea that I knew who he was, but just how things work in the Vegaverse. In any case, was feeling very irritated going into the week and thought maybe, just maybe I need to spend some time walking the earth, but then I thought, no, I just need to go full bore back into the world of the podcast. So here I am, folks. This episode is, in fact, happening. I am here. Spirits are high. Spirits are great. Positivity is an all-time high. Totally not manic or anything. This is totally legit. Just just feeling, feeling the positivity. Well, I've been working in a coal mine, going down, down. Working in a coal mine, whoop, about to slip down. You know, I don't know whether to laugh or cry about this one. But I was driving back from taking my kids to school this morning. Uh, Miss one, age 16. Miss two, age 12. Um, Miss one, actually don't take that far. Just drop her off along the way. And then she walks the rest of the way. Miss two, her school is way the heck out in the hinterlands from where we live. So I have to drive her there. Um... But I was driving back, and I was driving along this uh, kind of busy continuum near where uh, I described uh, stopping at a McDonald's a couple episodes back. The McDonald's, where I was driving near a uh, monster truck that had stickers about uh, uh, think twice because I won't, and you're looking at his gun barrel and like other, like he's going to shoot you for different infractions. Bumper stickers uh, right in that same area. I was uh, driving both in tandem with and then in front of and then behind because these kind of guys are always swerving around to try to make incremental uh, changes in their positioning in this road where you can't really go anywhere. Driving near this guy in a huge, ginormous black truck of some sort, way high off the ground with big kind of Bigfoot. Remember uh, those commercials back in the day? Bigfoot and the return of the monster trucks, the trucks, the trucks, the trucks. Uh, Yeah, it was like, I mean, not as extravagant as a Bigfoot, but, you know, it's still, like, beyond anything anyone would ever need for an actual uh, functional vehicle. Big black truck, um, and this one was doing the same things all over the road, trying to pass people, but then there's nowhere to pass because this is, like, this constricted thoroughfare where you're stopping at at traffic signals every few feet, and uh, just exuding rage in the way that he was driving. Um, But he, this one had... These guys... (laughs) These ones always, it's interesting because these guys, on one hand, seem kind of antisocial just by way of the, the the driving body language and by way of the messages that they broadcast via the stickers. But then they really want to, to it's like they need to reach out. They're, they're, they're trying to message themselves. They want to make a connection somehow as, as uh, belligerent and antisocial as it may be. So this one had a sticker. And this sticker had a skull. It was a skull. And around the skull, it said, had lettering that said, 
No one cares. Work harder. So, granted, I could be misinterpreting the meaning of this sticker, but what I took it to mean, particularly in the context of, of the type of vehicle and the way the vehicle was being uh, driven, I took it to mean that this individual was um, broadcasting themselves, communicating themselves as one of these folks who is up in arms about kind of the, the wussification of, of our culture, of our society, the fact that people talk about things like feelings and, and and worry about how they're feeling or how other people might be feeling, and that really they just need to STFU and just work harder. If they only worked harder, all of these things that they they uh, envision as problems in their life would be gone. Just like this gentleman, who I'm sure was problem-free due to his hard work, although I'm not, I don't know, <laughs> being a bit facetious there. But I, it, it, this mentality, which I find to be kind of a slave mentality, so it's really baffling to me. And again, this is just me. And I know things are different for different people. But I feel like as a human being, we have the more kind of like sub parts of human existence. The more kind of machine-like or animal-like parts of human existence. And this part of being a human, to me, is extremely uninteresting. Um the the raw labor that we have to do to survive. Obviously, we have to do it. Obviously, it's not going away. It's part of being a human being, but it's not the interesting part of being a human being, at least to me. So I'm always a little confounded, um, at least from my little Gino Vegan perch in the universe, um, by people who kind of seem to exalt these, to me, lesser parts of the human experience. Like there, There's absolutely nothing more pinnacle of being a human being than labor, than work. Um, and this often seems to go hand in hand, and it's what this sticker seemed to be suggesting, with sort of like policing your uh, perception of whether other people are working hard enough to uh, satisfy your version of what work means or what hard work means or how much you think they should be working. That's a very strange thing to me, too. A very strange cultural thing. This this business of, uh, they're lazy. Oh, they should get a job. It's like, you don't know what someone's doing. And why do you care? Do your thing. And I, so, so long as someone's not, like, right up in your face, you know, getting in your way in, in some totally debilitating uh, manner, let it go, dude. I mean, is it really that that important? Um, reminds me of a funny story. And that's the other thing about this, because what is work? What is labor? Uh, to me, obviously, we just live in this world. We live in this uh, uh, kind of... Uh, was it that old silent movie, Metropolis, where they're all working in some pit and there's like Moloch, the, the, the evil god, is, is, is forcing them into labor? We live in that kind of... Under Moloch's shadow, all of us. No matter what, the, to the richest individual, to the poorest, we live in this world of physical laws and socioeconomic laws where we're all to one degree or another a slave to labor. You don't find some way to make your way in the world physically, you know, providing the, the food and nutrients you need, the shelter you need, you will perish. That's, that's this horrific in a sense world that we find ourselves in. But I guess that, leaves us with the question then, those of us who are uh, 
fortunate enough to be at least free enough to make these kind of choices, do you then worship that condition, worship that condition of being a slave to the physical world, worship that condition that you need to uh, work to make a paycheck to eat and have shelter? Or do you see it as a means to living in a way where you can get that little glimpse of what might be beyond that kind of grimy grind of the coal mine, of the of of working on the railroad track, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm using these uh, metaphorical. Obviously, many of us, uh, whether it's the blue collar, white collar, whatever, it's all it's all toiling for Moloch. Um, but is maybe working as best we can towards some degree of an authentic life in an inauthentic world. Is that its own kind of work? And is that a kind of work where, yes, you use this kind of more boring drudgery work to make it possible, but you don't worship the drudgery um, and you don't use it as a means or weapon for judging others. You use it as a tool in the service of that much more important work. I don't know. That's how it seems to me. But then again, that's just me. But anyway, funny story. So I realize on paper, sometimes it's easy to paint good old Mr. Sensational Gino Vega as a bit of a slacker, a bit of an underachiever. Um, you know, I, I don't have a huge body of paid work. I have kind of menial retail type jobs and a few strange jobs, like an assembly line job, which we'll talk about someday um, in my uh, young adult past. And then I did some college, um, basically finished. That's another story for another time. I think I might have hearkened to that a little bit before, but we can talk about that more in the future. Um, and then when it came time for me to graduate college, you know, my wife and I had our first child. And so then most of my attention turned instead to um, helping raise that child while... Uh, my wife did the bulk of the Moloch-oriented work outside of the home. Um, so, again, on paper, kind of slackery. You know, I, I, I don't have like... Oh, and I, I did for a couple years, for a few years, work full-time outside the home. But I don't have a long-storied career. I don't have a lot of career accolades, a lot of uh, work or labor accolades. Um, but I realized when I stopped to think about it that... I actually have done a lot of work in my life because I, you know, um, I'm actually going to talk about this more next episode and for reasons that will become clear then. But just as a thumbnail, you know, uh, Ms. Sensational, my wife and I <clears throat> met when we were, when I was 14, she was 16. Obviously, we haven't been a couple that entire time, but I'm 44 now. She's 46 and we've been married for 19 years as of today um, while I'm recording this. And it's by no accident that two people maintain a relationship like that over a lifetime. It requires quite a bit of work. And for some people, that may not be worth the work. For us, it was. But th that work took just as much energy, took just as much time, took just as much dedication as, you know, I don't know, getting a law degree, working in a factory, uh running a business, I don't know, whatever you, whatever people do to survive in the world. Um, but for us, it was more important than just surviving in the world. It was, it was creating this life on top of that survival. Um, so that took a lot of work. 
Being actively involved with children is a lot of work, but it's a different kind of work. But getting to this funny story and all of this is um, my mom was recently telling me that uh, years back, um, they have a neighbor couple that they're friends with that are similar age to them, like in their 70s or whatever. And we've lived around the corner from them. My parents lived around the corner for them, me for part of that stint. Since I think, um, mm, like 1987, 1988. So it's been a long time. But um, around that time when, uh, um, 16 years ago, when Miss One, our 16-year-old, was born, the husband of this couple that was uh, friends with my parents became um, keenly um, concerned with why I was not working outside the home. And would uh, consistently bring it up whenever they were socializing with my parents. Like, what does Gino Vega do? What does he actually do all day? And, you know, had Gino Vega known about these questions, Gino Vega could have um, illuminated for him, you know, the sheer hours spent raising a child, um, hours of attention spent, hours of reading to this child, um, developing a relationship with this child, Developing a, a, a true, authentic bond with this child. Um, waiting on this child hand and foot. I mean, we're talking about when she was a baby and like a small, you know, one or two. Uh, I'm sure the worker death types would, would suggest that she should have just been like, you know, thrown, thrown in the pit directly. But, you know, I felt that I brought this, helped bring this child into the world. I, I owed it to her to help bring her into a some semblance of uh, meaningful life. Um, but in any case, this gentleman persisted, <laughs> questioning my parents at every turn as to what I was doing um, and why I was not doing something more work-oriented. Um, to Until it came to a head, until it came to a point when my dad, God rest his soul, didn't have the, always have the best relationship with my dad, but in this uh, instance was pretty funny. Um, he told the gentleman that kept asking, don't you ever ask me about that again? And then I guess, uh, that line of questioning ended. So <laughs> awkward, but classic. Um, but I guess the point being, we all have our own work to do in this world and do it, don't do it, whatever, but just know that everyone Everyone's leading their own work life for whatever reason, for due to whatever abilities they have, and uh, you don't have to care, but uh, I guess you could at least mm, try a little bit hard and at least understand. Well, I've been working in a Since I honestly can't think of a topic more boring than work. Let's shift gears and talk about play. Let's talk about games. Let's talk specifically about point-and-click adventure games, personal computer point-and-click adventure games, uh, published by a number of entities, but published most significantly by Sierra Sierra Online, I think they were called at one point. I think they were like Sierra Entertainment something or other now. And LucasArts, uh, the people behind Star Wars and all that jazz. Um, this clutch of iconic games that 
came into existence, I'd say probably like mid-1980s until the genre sort of died out in the early 1990s. I, I'm positive a comic book guy can crash through the wall like Kool-Aid Man and correct me on some of those details. But that's the general thumbnail that I remember being an avid player of those games in their day. So I remember when my dad bought our first family computer. It was a boxy, artless, beige, Epson personal computer. Microsoft DOS-based. Um, you had to boot it. I think you had to boot it up with DOS disks. And then it was the whole like C colon, you know, hard drive command prompt. And you had to like type in, you know, it wasn't like a, a Windows style graphical user interface. It was uh, typing in commands to get software to work. Um, he bought that computer. And he bought a clutch of pirated software from a fellow running a classified ad in the local paper where you could drive out to his home, wait out in the sticks in a town called Forestville and uh, peruse his boxes of floppy disks and buy pirated software from him. Um, and this is how I got a hold of my first collection of Sierra games. Sierra was my jam starting out. And these games... Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with them, they included things like King's Quest, Space Quest, Police Quest, games that put you in the role of a fantasy character. In King's Quest, you were kind of a medieval gentleman. I think you were like Graham was the guy's name. They, the characters were very sort of loosely fleshed in these games because they were more an avatar for you to put yourself into. But... You controlled this little sprite-based character walking around on a screen, walking around in a medieval setting where at King's Quest, a science fiction setting where at Space Quest. My favorite, kind of like a contemporary uh, gritty crime uh, scene with Police Quest. I always liked the, the video games that just depicted quote-unquote mundane real life for some reason. I've always found that fascinating, even to this day. But Sierra's games were definitely my entry point into this style of PC adventure game. Uh, by PC, I mean personal computer. Don't Any mutants out there don't get uh, frenzied. But I remember, I, I think I started off with the first couple of King's Quest games, and I don't know that I ever even finished them. We're talking about like one and two. Those are some of the drier of the Sierra games, because I think they were some of the earliest ones. Not that they're bad, but they're just uh, later iterations and other franchises, to me, were more interesting. But these games, and uh, this is like a point of contention where like a comic book guy might disagree. The, the early Sierra games, the Sierra games themselves were not necessarily point and click isn't the best way, because I think, God, did I even have a mouse when I was playing those early ones? You would move your character around with a keypad, and then the way those games worked is you would walk up to people and objects and type in commands through, I guess you'd call it like a text parser or something. So, you know, you'd be like, look at shelf. And it always had to be in a way that the game's syntax understood. Like you might say, look at the shelf. And it's, I don't understand what you're talking about, but look at shelf. You see a hammer. And then you would have to figure out if you could take this hammer. Um, that in itself was, was uh, uh, 
just completely riveting as a child in uh, the mid 80s. Because I think it was just like this idea. The same reason why text adventures like Zork and Wishbringer and all that was so fascinating before in a text format before these Sierra games is just this idea that you're in an immersive world where you can make choices and interact with objects and interact with things. And of course, it was in a very limited syntax driven way. But as a kid in 1986, in 1988, you didn't necessarily perceive those limitations. You just felt like you were being sucked into this virtual world, much like that dweeb in the never ending story. Um, except in this case, you were doing it uh, by way of a computer screen instead of some boring old book. Um, I really started to hit my stride with Sierra Games uh, with King's Quest 3. Because uh, that's where things started to get a little more real. Like, you weren't just in the same kind of boring woodland background. You got to go on a ship. Uh, somehow that just made it even more immersive to me. Um, and then the one that really, really pulled me in all the way for the first time that I played from start to finish, beat the whole thing was uh, Space Quest 3, where you play a janitor named Roger Wilco, who's on a wacky, madcap uh, adventure with space with all kinds of science fiction parodies. I, I think in 3, he's being chased by some Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator parody-style robot. Um, I eventually gained access to and went back and played um, some of the earlier Space Quests, and I think in like Space Quest 1, I, I could be wrong, one of the earlier Space Quests, though, you get to go, you essentially go into the Creature Cantina from Star Wars, and like sometimes the Blues Brothers are performing in there, and sometimes uh, ZZ Top is in there, um, in in very crude pixelated form, but there nonetheless. So these games were just very whimsical. They were very appealing. They made me feel like I was in this world that was actually fun to be in instead of the lame, uh, dreary world of of junior high school that I was inhabiting in my real life. And I guess that was really the key to these games is. At a time in my life where I was not having much in the way of quality, authentic interaction, I could have these whimsical interactions in these games that, while not authentic, were at least engaging, unlike the inauthentic real-life experiences I was having in junior high school. So I ran wild with Sierra for a number of years. Um, things really, really ramped up. Um, when uh, a local bulletin board system that will remain nameless um, created a secret black market for uh, pirated software. And I don't, to the life, for the life of me, I don't even remember exactly how this worked because it was basically you could call this bulletin board system, there was like a backdoor, and you went to this section where you could download zipped files of um, Sierra games and other, other, uh, software. But I have to imagine just the nature of bulletin board systems at the time, this individual must have been storing this software, these files locally on his own computer. But then again, I don't understand why he would have had access to all this stuff or where he would have gotten it. What, 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 there had to have been some sort of networking source. And at the time, this was also in the early days of uh, uh, bulletin boards using the software called World War Four. were able to, to like do some crude, like, pre-internet networking together. So I honestly, I don't know where this content came from, but I suddenly had access to pretty much all the Sierra games. Um, apologi apologies to Sierra for these ill-gotten gains, but I was a kid. I didn't really have my own funds, and here these games are just being dropped in my lap. So what are you going to do? Um, 
But anyway, yeah, I, this allowed me to really delve deep into the Police Quest franchise, which I loved. Um, allowed me to play the uh, scandalous Leisure Suit Larry games, which are always uh, marketed as these heavily hardcore adult video games. But really, they were just kind of like, they were no more adult than like an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> they were just sort of like comedy games with a couple innuendo jokes in them. Um, but uh, ran wild with Sierra. Got into a little trouble with Sierra because um, Sierra had a, much like I think I talked about, was it last time? A few times ago? Talked about, a few times ago. Talked about getting in trouble calling a uh, 1-900 phone number, pay phone number to listen to uh, the Knight Rider car kit. Talk about his new uh, features. Similarly, uh, Sierra had a 1-900 hint number. And when I would get stuck, when I needed hints, I knew, I was old enough now to know, this was going to come back to bite me. I was going to get in trouble for making these calls because they were going to cost money. But by God, I was stuck and I needed the hint. What are you going to do? So I'd call the 1-900 number. And sure enough, about a month later, my mom would be ranting and raving about, who's calling Coarse Gold California? Why is it costing $20? Ah, da, 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 da. Hey, I got my hints, man. What are you going to do? I, I, I had no choice. Sorry, mom. Um, one time, interestingly, uh, our family took a trip to the Sierra Nevada region. I think we took a trip to Yosemite. And somewhere near there was that aforementioned area of Coarse Gold, California. I, I think it was Coarse Gold. I mean, if that was the phone number was, that must be where their Sierra offices were. But we realized we were near the actual physical location of the Sierra software company. So uh, it turns out you could show up and get a tour of the facilities. Um, and so show up and get a tour of the facilities we did. It was really weird. In my memory, it was almost like it was just like a campground. And then there were these portable buildings on the campground. And that was the Sierra complex. I don't know if it was really that primitive, but that's what it felt like. Uh, but it was kind of cool because uh, what was his name Jim Walls, I think, the creator of Police Quest, uh, happened to be on the premises that day. And so he himself gave us the tour. So that was kind of cool. Um, and it's just so weird because Sierra was such a monolith in my life, such a looming presence. Um, Sierra Games. I, I, I lived and breathed Sierra Games for what felt like a lifetime. And because time is so different when you're young and everything's so distorted and also games were new, computers were, computer games were new, relatively new, and that style of computer game was new, those games just felt so immersive. It felt like you could just spend an eternity playing them. And really, I mean, they were probably like maybe like five hours long start to finish. And now today you play video games for like 2,000 hours long. But each, each one that you embarked on felt like you were signing up for... You know, you were, you were Homer literally going on an odyssey for however the heck long it was Homer's odyssey, like he was gone for 20 years or something like that. That's what I always felt like. Um, but eventually, Sierra, I don't even remember how it ended, but it just, it, it, the games felt less, less uh, immediate, less relevant, and that there were less of them, and like the style of games Sierra put out was kind of changing. I, the only thing I can compare it to was, um, for any of you... And I know there's at least a few that listen to the show that were fans of Lookout Records. It was like when Lookout Records went from putting out the kind of music that you wanted to hear as a fan of Lookout Records, the Screeching Weasels, the Green Days, 
um, bands like that, and then suddenly they're putting out weird avant-garde, cool dude, hipster indie music, then the label went out of business. That's kind of what, how it felt like happened with Sierra, because they started to put out just kind of more, not like uh, iconically Sierra games, just just games that you could get from some other publisher. And so then Sierra wasn't really Sierra. And I don't know how much that really had to do with it, or if that was just my own perception. I know in the case of Lookout, I, I don't think that was a good business move for them, but I just kind of feel like that's what happened with Sierra. In any case, concurrently with Sierra, LucasArts, the uh, video game wing of uh, Lucasfilm, whatever, the, the parent company of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all the George Lucas good stuff, um, they started putting out their own version of point-and-click PC adventure games. And these literally were point-and-click because at this at this time, at this stage of the game with the LucasArts games, you would just... you would click on objects you wanted to use and move them over to other objects you wanted to use them on and click on people you wanted to talk to and then you could click on dialogue options, etc. You were less fumbling around in the dark with trying to, to work the syntax the right way as you were with uh, Sierra games. Um, but LucasArts started putting out games. And my first memory of a LucasArts game and that just blew my mind was my good buddy Matt, who had an Amiga computer. Um, I would love just going over his house and watching him play Amiga games for hours on end. Uh, he had a game called Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. And um, Zack McCracken was this kind of Jerry Seinfeld type character that lived in an apartment in a city. And he, I don't even, I, I honestly have not seen or played this game since like playing it as it was a new game on the scene back in 1980, whatever. Um, but he was this kind of hapless sitcom character who got embroiled in some alien extraterrestrial caper. But this game was fascinating. Because when you were controlling this guy in his apartment, you could straight up turn on the TV and watch TV in the game. And it all felt very real and, and stuff that was being said on the news, on the TV, if you watched it, pertained to like what was happening at the point of the game you were in. And it was all just very, like, this is so immersive. So um, LucasArts, concurrent with Sierra, and then at a certain point, for me at least, eclipsed Sierra, was never as endearing, was never as heartwarming as Sierra's look, Sierra's vibe, but surpassed Sierra and what it was able to present. Zack McCracken game was amazing. There was that Maniac Mansion game that so many people remember that was also kind of similar genre. Um, but then these uh, LucasArts, just because of their franchises that they had control of, were able to combine the classic point-and-click adventure with very recognizable franchises. For instance, they put out that beautiful... Indiana Jones point and click game, which again, I don't think I ever actually owned that and ever got to play it all the way through, but I just, it was one of those things that was always around. And I was always aware of it and it was just a beautiful game, but you want to talk about beautiful games and that's what we're going to end on here today because we're going, going to the wire here. LucasArts put out a game called Loom and Loom, I think was really towards the end of the golden age of this style of video game. Um, I looked at it right before I started recording and I believe Loom was released in 1990. But Loom was a game where you played, I think you were like a shepherd, you were this hooded guy and you couldn't really see the face and you had like a shepherd's croc, shepherd's staff, whatever. But Loom had a game mechanic where basically you had to weave yarn, together in a way that created musical sound or created a spell. If you never played Loom, do yourself a favor and just really quickly Google search it, look at some of the images, maybe watch a YouTube video. It, just the way the game wove these really kind of mythical, beautiful graphics with this just enthralling sounds, 
It was literally, literally a spellbinding game. And that was the whole game was about spellbinding. But it was also a spellbinding game. But sadly, I never got to finish Loom. I owned a physical hard copy of Loom because that was the only way one really owned games back then. Except, I guess, I had those pirated Sierra games. But that was, that was uncommon. Generally, if you had a game in 1990, you had a physical copy of a game. Something I don't understand in, in 2021. You know, the, the Alberts out there, the teen idols of the world who still buy physical copies of, like, PlayStation 4 games. Bro, you can download those. Just buy them online. Buy them on the, the PSN store or whatever. Download download that sucker. Save yourself a trip to wherever even sells video games now. I don't want to cast shade on physical media in its entirety because I, I one of my best friends, Jerry, was fixing to uh, reopen Santa Rosa's last record store as the next record store as we speak. And his entire business uh, revolves around physical media. But with a record, I get it because there, there's a certain experience with a record that's different than digital music. With video games, you're playing this digital video game, whether you pull it out of a box or download it to your system. It's all the same. And you don't buy it from some community store where you meet other people. You go to GameStop or whatever. Come on, man. Come on. Teen Idol, enough of the physical video games. Let's get into uh, the 21st century here. Anyway, I had a physical copy of Loom. And uh, this fellow who we're going to call Abercrombie uh, wanted to borrow it from me. And you know when you're a kid and someone wants to borrow something from you and you don't really want to give it up, you don't want to be a jerk and you just feel kind of awkward and I mean at least that's how it was for me. This guy was sweating me to borrow Loom and I hadn't finished it yet, but I was like, "Ah, whatever." So I let Abercrombie borrow Loom. But it just so turned out that around this time was my early days of knowing uh my now wife Ms. S. She was my girlfriend at the time, our first uh, stint together as a couple. And uh, Abercrombie had a cousin that we're going to call Jeremiah. And I don't even remember the details, but these guys were involved in this whole bulletin board system modeming scene at the time. And, you know, it was 1990, and the way gender dynamics were, I mean, they probably still are, but the way they were at the time was basically... Group of dudes uh, rolling around, a dude takes an interest in a uh, young woman, and the young woman is not interested in him, therefore it's somehow her fault and her problem. And I think Jeremiah had a flame for Ms. S, and she wasn't interested, so then that whole crew was all up in arms about her and hated her. So they went on to some bulletin board system with like a fake account and did something where they were like making some post, describing, committing some graphic uh, physical crimes against her. Um, so I couldn't really be friends with Abercrombie anymore after that. Let's put it that way. He, he had gone full school shooter at this by this point. I mean, I don't mean he actually did a school shooting because this was before that was really a big thing, but it was that kind of behavior. It was the similar coming from the same place. That's just like wanton, uh, craven, crass, uncontrolled teen behavior. Something I don't miss in my life because that was something I can't, that energy that I came into contact a lot in the nineties. I know some people, uh, romanticize the idea of being a feral child with no real relationship with your parents, just out wandering the world with no consequences, no responsibilities. But I never really liked that. The whole 90s, 80s, 90s childhood, just cast adrift in the world, going over to some kid's house, listen to his dad beat him while I sit in the living room waiting awkwardly, and then we go out to go wander around like gummo for the rest of the day. I kind of like things better. We can talk about more of this more at a later date. But uh, but, um, 
I like having an authentic relationship with my kids. I think they enjoy having one with me. And that doesn't mean micromanaging their behavior, but just kind of knowing what's going on. I think it cuts down on, on, on the uh, potential for uh, school shooterage but, or, or just general antisocial behavior. But anyway, Abercrombie and Jeremiah had just gone full antisocial. I couldn't really, ha- you know, hang with them anymore. And it was it made even worse. It was like my girlfriend that they were victimizing. Um, and that meant I never got back loom. And I never finished Loom. And I know my younger brother to this day is annoyed by that because he's like, you know, uh, Scott or Gino, Gino, where's Loom? And it's like, well, buddy, I uh, loaded to Abercrombie. I don't think it's ever coming back. So maybe I'll, after this, I'll go see if I can find some like ROM version of, of it or something and play it or browser-based version and play it online because that was an amazing game. I don't know. Shout out to fun and games, even if our Abercrombie and Jeremiah had to come along and ruin them. But uh, Sierra... Lucasfilm, fun times. Oh, the whole reason I brought this up is because I recently joined a uh, Sierra Facebook group and a Lucas uh, Arts Facebook group and have just been kind of lost in the reminiscence zone because there's not much else of interest going on on Facebook these days. But it was kind of kind of fun to get plugged in back on that and thought I would share some of those memories with you. And with that said, we've gone too long once more on an episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, in this case, episode 41, right here on the IC Robots Radio Network. And until next time, this is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega for the aforementioned Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on that IC Robots Radio Network, signing off.